Welcome to another exciting episode of NIDS Knowledge, a weekly show of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, where we are advancing peace, promoting stability, and helping you to think deterrence. Each week, we inform you about a deterrence topic and its value in preserving peace. We hope you enjoy this show. At the most recent National Space Council public meeting, the Biden administration released several priorities to be worked by the federal interagency, one of which is familiar to space policy people in and out of government space export control reform. This is a topic that has been considered an issue by many in the space industry and commercial sector for decades. One of the most vocal proponents of reform is Mike Gold, now working for Redwire, who recently was quoted in SpacePolicyOnline.com as saying, quote, Second only to gravity, export controls have the greatest chance of keeping American aerospace grounded. This is why I am extraordinarily grateful for the Vice President and Space Council explicitly tackling such a nuanced yet vital issue. Technology is in a constant state of evolution, which is why export control rules must be continuously revised and updated to prevent them from becoming obsolete and counterproductive. Superficially, such a review should ensure that technologies which are widely available on the international marketplace are not being controlled. Moreover, The export control benefits, which the International Space Station currently enjoys, needs to be extended to cover commercial space stations. Finally, we should at least review the potential of simplifying export controls by merging the United States Munitions List and the Commerce Control List into a single list to reduce redundancy, conflict, and confusion, end quote. In this episode, we will review the basics of space export controls and what has happened in the last 30 years to provide you, my beloved audience, the proper context before moving into issues being raised at the Space Council and why there are different perspectives policy-wise and strategy-wise on this issue. So first, so you know what those terms that I mentioned earlier are, what are export controls? According to the Guidebook for Commercial Space Providers from the FAA, the United States government controls the export of launch vehicles, spacecrafts, component technologies, and other space-related items for national security reasons. These control regimes are in place to reduce the possibility of missile-related and other technology spreading to foreign entities that could use it to threaten U.S. interests. The current export control process in the United States involves two sets of regulations and two lead departments. The International Traffic and Arms Regulations, known better as ITAR, has been developed under the jurisdiction of the Department of State, and is administered by their Directorate of Defense Trade Controls, or DDTC. These regulations support the control of items, information, or activities that could be used for threatening foreign military purposes, be they actual products, defense articles and policy speak, or technical data and support, known as defense services and policy speak. These are detailed in ITAR under the United States Munitions List, or USML. Controls also exist under the Department of Commerce for technologies that could be used for either military or commercial purposes, known as dual use in policy speak. The Export Administration Regulations, or EAR, which is the commerce version of ITAR, is administered by the Department of Commerce's Bureau of Industry and Security. Some specific items, which may be tangentially part of an overall space-related endeavor, could be classified a commercial product and would therefore be licensed by the EAR. These items, detailed in the EAR under the Commerce Control List, 
Over the years, there have been many misconceptions about these control regimes, namely that the U.S. munitions list is a, quote, restricted list. This is not the case. While since under the U.S. munitions list are more difficult process-wise to sell outside the U.S., it is not forbidden. When a space component is sold under ITAR or USML regulations, only the component itself can be sold and only with several security processes and mechanisms in place during the entire process from sale to integration into a spacecraft. This can get expensive for smaller startup companies who seek to partner with some other nations not given special treatment, such as the UK and Australia, who are treated in many ways as if they are part of the U.S. industry. As a result of the legal and regulatory hurdles involved in protecting some space components, this can incur a lot of cost that smaller companies cannot bear as easy as the big traditional companies like Boeing or Lockheed Martin. As a result, most prefer, as Mike Gold inferred, either more of these components move to the commerce control list or a simpler merge control list for simplicity. To contrast from the component-only sale and integration of the U.S. munitions list ITAR regime is the Commerce Control List, or the CCL. The CCL is more what is known as state-of-the-world type components, and when a sale is made, the entirety of the component's development and use, such as engineering data, design information, and the component itself, are included in the transactions. It is important to note that just because an individual component is on the CCL, that does not mean that a fully integrated spacecraft with commerce control list components will remain so controlled on the commerce list. For example, let's take Virgin Galactic Spaceship 2. Even if all the components within that spacecraft were, quote, state of the world and not state of the art, and integrated into the completed Spaceship 2, the spacecraft, if sold as one piece, would be controlled by the U.S. munitions list and not the commerce control list. Why is this? Well, that is because there are other regulatory regimes that impact space system components due to international agreements and regimes. For example, in the case of the Spaceship 2 concept there that we just went over, given the flight characteristics and ranges performed by the vehicle, which is ballistic in nature, it would also be governed as a munition under ITAR due to the rules of the MTCR, or the Missile Technology Control Regime. This regime was created to prevent missile proliferation in the 1990s, and it defines a missile as a vehicle that flies a ballistic flight path for a specified range. As that is the flight profile of Virgin Galactic Spaceship, if Virgin wanted to sell the vehicle to a foreign nation, not just the service of rides, but the vehicle itself, it would be a U.S. munitions list controlled item. There are other international agreements that impact these reviews and decisions on space components as well. One other is the Wassenaar Arrangement. The Wassenaar Arrangement was created as an international mechanism to contribute to regional and international security and stability by promoting transparency and greater responsibility in transfers of conventional arms and dual-use goods and technologies thus preventing destabilizing accumulations of weapons in the wrong hands. The initial elements were originally established in 1996 and set out the purposes and scope of the arrangement. At present, there are 42 participating states in this arrangement, the U.S. being one. So to many people in industry, export controls have been a continuing factor negatively impacting U.S. commercial space competitiveness globally. The current administration, specifically the Deputy Commerce Secretary Don Graves, 
is quoted as saying that they want to have a more, quote, light touch, industry-friendly approach to ensure that U.S. space industry is competitive and that we can lead well into the 21st century, end quote. All of this sounds logical, but there is more to this story than what the headlines say. The fact is, the U.S. munitions list and the commerce control list have been reformed several times since the 1999 National Defense Authorization Act that moved things back on to this munitions list. Also, it was modified to ensure that there was a process of continual updates and reviews to ensure that as things change technologically, components that were considered state-of-the-art but are now state-of-the-world would be able to move to the less controlling list. Now, before I get into this any more, it should be good to provide a little more background on the 1990s. So why did everything get moved over in 1999 from the commerce list that were space components into the U.S. munitions list? Well, in the post-Cold War period, Chinese rockets were constantly blowing up. And the reason why that was a problem is in the post-Cold War world, United States policy toward commercial satellite operators was to give them the most commercial options there was, and some of that meant using Russian rockets and Chinese rockets to keep them busy doing other things that are less nefarious than building missile systems. However, due to all the explosions of Chinese rockets, it was thought that Laurel Space, one of the key aerospace companies working with the Chinese, should be able to help them figure out what the deal was so that U.S. companies wouldn't keep losing satellites due to explosions. Long story short, a lot of technical know-how got sent to the Chinese and was used to make their rockets work, which is fine, but then led to their ICBM programs expanding and working, much to the dislike of many in Congress. This led to what was known as the Cox Commission, which investigated and led to the discussion and decision that the State Department and the DDTC should control all space components off the munitions list again for tighter security. Some people, in the industry especially, considered this to be an overboard type of act and hurtful to the industry. Part of this, because of ITAR protections, it was hard for the U.S. state-of-the-art to get out there because you had European countries who were also heavily subsidized saying that they're, they're selling ITAR pre-products. Because of ITAR protections intended to keep U.S. state-of-the-art protected from theft and espionage, it took more than a decade to get the first two reform efforts going in the 2010s. I actually participated in each of these, and it had representatives from all major space players in the U.S. government and had input from industry due to requests for information being sent out per the usual process, as well as other advisory people being consulted. So despite all these efforts, we seem to be at the same spot and the same rhetoric that we've heard over 10 years ago in the 2010s. So the question is, is this really still an issue, or did the reform efforts done in the 2010s, were they effective? More on that in a future episode. But until then, this is Christopher Stone. Thanks for listening.
Thank you for listening to NIDS Knowledge. This show is produced under the NIDS Podcasting Network, a division of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. NIDS is a 501c3 organization dependent upon donations to provide this podcast and bring about awareness of the peacekeeping value of U.S. strength and our national deterrence. You can catch all of our podcasts or provide feedback at thinkdeterrence.com. I would like to thank our producer, Kimberly Charrington, our sponsors, and all the fantastic members of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned next week for another exciting and informative NIDS knowledge. A production of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies.